When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network Animal Studies channel. My name's Kyle Johansson, and I'm a host on this channel. Today, I'm very happy to be interviewing Brian Cateman. Brian is an award-winning author, a freelance journalist, and he's also the president and co-founder of the Reducitarian Foundation. Today, we'll be discussing his book, Meet Me Halfway, How Changing the Way We Eat Can Improve Our Lives and Save Our Planet. Uh, This book was published in 2022 by Prometheus Books. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. It's great to have you. Uh, could you please tell us a bit about yourself, such as where you're from, what sort of work you do, or, or anything else you think the listeners might want to know about you? Yeah, I mean, I think probably the most important thing to know about me is from I'm from Staten Island, New York. And if you're familiar with New York, um, Staten Island is not known to be a particularly progressive place in terms of many issues related to what I focus on, which is around encouraging people to eat less meat or thinking about our relationship to animals and the planet at large. So a lot of my um, sense of the world is actually very much formed by my upbringing, and perhaps we'll talk more about that. Um, But really, I'm very much focused on trying to figure out ways to reduce suffering in the world. And I'm very concerned about the ways that we raise animals for food. I've always um, been someone who thinks a lot about how to communicate effectively and how to reach a mass audience with a digestible message that might actually inspire them to either change their behavior or think about an issue in a different way. And most of my work, whether it's in the context of books or documentaries or conferences um, or uh, films or whatever it is, or op-eds and so on, is really centered around that kind of core idea. And that's kind of what I try to bring um, to the world. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, uh, Brian. Um, yeah, I, I take it that, and we'll, we'll talk about reducitarianism and what it is in a moment, but um, it does seem to be um, meant to be a very accessible identity. Um, it's meant to appeal to a broad audience. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that stuff. Um, well, one thing that uh, you don't make um, super obvious on your on your on your website or in other places, but but it you, you know if if one looks into you, they'll see it. It's that you, in addition to being a, a you know a writer and an activist, you're also you're also a teacher. You teach some classes at um, Fordham University, and I, I think the pronunciation is Kine Kine University. It's actually Kane University. Kane, Kane. okay. 
it's interesting because when I started teaching there, I said, I said keen over and over again. And <laughs> yeah. I was corrected. Uh, yeah, I do. I teach uh, a media and environmental course at Fordham, which is really teaching other young people how to create campaigns to better the world. So it's mm-hmm. one of my favorite courses. And then I also teach environmental science and sustainability at Keene University. And I really love um, teaching and reaching young people, particularly because sometimes it can feel like you're shouting into the ether when you're you're publishing op-eds or writing here I'm actually with real human beings so it's been it's been a real privilege to have done that the past couple of years yeah yeah cool um yeah I, I do a bit of teaching myself too and um uh sometimes it's pretty frustrating especially grading I don't like that but <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh but there's definitely parts of it that are rewarding um it's it can be quite social um you know lecturing and taking questions and stuff um but uh, yeah, anyways. Um, okay, so let's, let's let's talk about your book. Um, why did you decide to write this book? Yeah, I mean, to understand why I decided to write Meet Me Halfway, it's helpful to understand that Meet Me Halfway was first a documentary, um, a documentary that explored the question, really, why is it so difficult to get people to eat less meat? And given that's the case, what alternatives are out there? And as we were filming the documentary version of the book over several years, the four or five years, I found that there was a lot of material that we had developed that simply was never going to make it into the film because the film is going to be 80 minutes. And I wanted to find a place to put it. There were all these ideas floating around my head and it sort of just felt like a waste not to um, contextualize it and put it down and put it out into the world. So about halfway through filming Meet Me Halfway, I decided, oh, I'm going to write a book version. And along the way, uh, was not only documenting the interviews and the experiences that I was undergoing, but also reading all these research books to really dive deeper into the history of meat to better understand how we got to this place where, for example, people in the United States eat well over 200 pounds of meat a year. Interestingly, in 2022, it was the highest in recorded history at 227 pounds. Um, when the, um, I think when the book had come out, we were focused on 2021, and it was 225 pounds per year. So we're really moving in the other direction. And I'm really, um, of course, one, I'm uh, emotionally invested in that because of its real implications for the world. But I am also just intellectually very fascinated by it. And so that was what inspired me to write the book. So there's plenty of content um, in the book that references the documentary, but there's a lot that doesn't. And it's nice to have both as a kind of complementary piece of uh, communications that are out there. Yeah, I, having um, watched the documentary before I uh, read the book, um, it was kind of neat. Yeah, there, there's certainly some crossover, particularly um, I noticed uh, uh, the personal stories that you um, tell in the book um, appear sort of live in in the documentary you you <laughs> describe experiences that you documented in the documentary um that was kind of cool um i i take that so doing doing a documentary prior to writing uh writing this book um that must have done a lot to promote the book um like i mean there's lots of different ways to promote a book but doing a documentary that you that you then base a book on in advance probably is an extremely effective way of promoting it i'm just guessing is that is that right I think that's right. Yeah, I tend to like doing communications as sort of a package. You know, I don't like the idea of producing one piece of content. I'd rather try to make it cohesive. 
because that I think increases the chances that a lot of people will see it and you'll sort of get more, um, I'm not bang for your buck, but you understand from a time perspective, uh, it, it's not, it doesn't only matter that people read the book or watched the movie. It's also that journalists covered the book or that we were able to do screenings of it in certain places. So whenever, whenever I think about my work, I try to figure out how can I maximize the, uh, the results of, you know, what can be a very time consuming process. So meet me halfway feels like a, I don't know, it feels like my baby. It's like a chapter of my life. You know, it was a, it was a five year sort of chapter that encapsulates the book and the film and all these other activities. And uh, I think you're right that trying to find ways to, um, you know, to multiply the, the impact is a, is a probably a strategic thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. This, and this book is kind of special because you, you have some other nonfiction books. You have a, a cookbook and you have an edited collection, but um, this is probably the, I guess this is the first like hefty nonfiction book that you wrote yourself. Like the first, like really, uh, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure what the right word is. Um, it's, it's sort of, it's quasi academic, but also intended for a broad audience. Um, like you, you haven't, I guess you have you've never written a nonfiction book like this before. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. The first book I published, Reduced Train Solution, was a compilation of essays from colleagues in the movement. And that was an important book because it was at a time where there wasn't a ton of collaboration. There was a lot, quite a lot of infighting um, and really a lack of understanding that there were so many reasons to end factory farming. And it, it didn't necessarily matter why someone was motivated to do that. I think the Reduced Train Solution helped show that and unite um, folks who were seemingly in disparate industries and, and areas of work. The cookbook was, uh, you know, I hired someone to develop the essays and of course played a role in thinking about what what uh, recipes to include and how to frame that. But Meet Me Halfway really is my kind of first major, um, I don't know, intellectual contribution and i i paid for it <laughs> writing a book is hard I, I i look at these boxes of books that i have i read probably 200 of these very dense sort of you know books many of them academic or obscure books and um i have tremendous respect as a result of going through that process for anyone who decides to go out and write a book so it's a real pleasure to be talking to you about it yeah yeah um well let, let's let's keep going um so your your book is not about reducitarianism, um, and yet Meet Me Halfway is, I think, closely related to reducitarianism. Um, so I was hoping you would um, explain exactly what reducitarianism is, um, and then also explain how it's related to your book's subject matter. A reducitarian is anyone who has made the decision to cut back on the amount of animal products that they consume, so meat, eggs, and dairy. And there's a couple core tenets to the reducitarian philosophy one of which is probably the most important is that it's not an all or nothing premise. So many people think of meat consumption as either you're a vegan or you're not. And I think that's um, not only intellectually not true, but also not a strategic framing for trying to advance what is my goal and many others for reducing societal consumption of animal products. It strikes me that it's very unlikely that the vast majority of people are going to go vegan or vegetarian, but more people could be motivated to cut back. And if we could get a large number of people to cut back, that would actually be more impactful than getting a small number of highly committed people to go vegan or vegetarian. So the fact that it's not all or nothing is one important component. 
And the next is that all motivations matter. So different people will come to the decision to cut back on animal products, whether that's for environmental issues or health or animal welfare or to save money or food justice issues. Um, all of those reasons are valid. We have an, an, a, a strange benefit in that factory farming is so problematic on so many levels that it brings a lot of people um, to this to this movement. So that's really the reducitarian concept at its heart. I like the question because it really is at the heart of why I wanted to make both the film and write the book. I realized um, a couple years into doing this work, probably later than many other people, uh, brighter than, than me, that telling people to simply eat less meat, while I would argue more effective than telling people to go vegan, is not going to uh, be enough. It's not going to result in the outcome that I want to see, which is a reduction in the amount of animal products that are produced and consumed as a society. So I found myself, you know, in, I don't know, 2017, 2018 or so, a couple of years after founding the nonprofit that I created, the Registrarian Foundation, to help promulgate this message, that uh, we were going to have to make it easier for people to cut back on animal products. It wasn't just about delivering the information. And so I found myself sort of pivoting in my own mind and in the work focused not just on getting people to recognize that it would be beneficial for everyone, um, people, animals, the planet, if we were to cut back on animal products, but that there were actually a lot of different ways to help make that possible. So that might be starting a, um, opening a vegan restaurant or becoming a lawyer and suing a factory farm, really thinking more about the system and ways we might be able to untangle it rather than focused on individual dietary change. And so I'm really glad that I had that epiphany at the moment that I did, because I think it was pretty early in the filmmaking process. And I, and, and, and subsequently the, the, by the time I started writing the book, I was very clear that I did not want this to be a book about how to eat less meat. I really wanted to focus on the question around why is it so difficult to get people to eat less meat and what can we do about it? And that's really the framing, I think, for both the documentary and the book. And it's why it's so different from the reducing solution and the reducing cookbook. And it reflects not just the writing that I'm now putting out, but also my entire relationship to this broader advocacy that I'm focused on. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, yeah. I've, I, I get the impression that people who are really um, enthusiastic about meat alternatives, like, um, like plant-based meat or, or in vitro meat, um, that they, it, it strikes me as a little bit Marxist. So um, Marxists, um, one of the things that they think is that a society's economic system determines other other features of the society, uh, especially its superstructure. Um, so like the, a society's ideology is largely determined by its economic system. Um, and so if you want a society's ideology to change, it makes a lot of sense to do what you can to change features of its economic system. Um, and in this case, I guess the hope is for a shift away from factory farmed meat and towards better forms of meat. Um, and then, you know, maybe once that happens, um, not only will, I guess, uh, um, people be eating less harmful meat or not, not eating harmful meat so much, but 
Um, but there's also room for people's beliefs to change um, more so. Is that is that a, a sort of view that you that you hold? I, I don't know if it really comes out in the book, but I'm curious. I'm very sympathetic to that view. Yeah, yeah I mean, I have a pretty. I mean, some people would call it cynical, but I just call it realistic view of humanity. Um, I don't think people are equipped to act against their own self-interest, um, which in this case might be defined as eating like really delicious um, food, even if it increases someone's chance of heart disease or you know, eating marginally more expensive foods, even if it's kinder to animals or the planet. Um, I see people as really wanting to eat uh, meat because it tastes good. It's relatively inexpensive and it's everywhere. And I just don't see a roadmap in which there's a revolution of our relationship to the planet and animals with respect to this issue. Mm. If uh, meat continues to be made in a way that is inexpensive everywhere and delicious if there's no other options on the table. Now, that doesn't mean the only option is alternatives like plant-based meat or what I would call cell cultured meat or what some people call cultivated meat, um, which we can talk more about. I uh, can see systems where there's policy that makes you know meat from uh, factory farms more expensive. And maybe there's animal welfare laws or there's regulations in place around environmental problems. And I think we should pursue those for sure. And, and there are many activists who are. But it, it really does seem to kind of come down to trying to change the economics um, rather than necessarily trying to awaken people to the horrors of factory farming. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that that's a, certainly something we do, I do, will continue to do and others do. But I'm not optimistic that that alone is going to move the needle. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, but before we, uh, I guess, get into more of the book, um, I'm, I'm interested in pursuing for a bit longer, um, just the idea of reducitarianism and, and how it should be understood. Um, and in particular, I'm, I'm wondering how similar or different veganism is from reducitarianism. Um, so, so I, I know that you tend to contrast veganism and reducitarianism, um, but they I think they do have a lot in common. Um, so, for example, reducitarian activists and vegan activists both oppose factory farming. Um, what's more, I, I think that some understandings of veganism, such as veganism understood as an aspirational ideal or, or veganism understood primarily as a social movement and only secondarily as a dietary ethic, um, understandings like this seem more or less compatible with reducitarianism. Um, so I was hoping you would comment for a bit on, on some of the ways reducitarianism is, is similar to or different from uh, veganism. This is one of my favorite questions because um, some of it is actually really useful and important and other of it, other of it is just sort of philosophical and interesting. And I'm sure we'll hit on, on both here. Reducitarian is an umbrella term. So it describes anyone who's made the decision to cut back on the amount of animal products that they consume. So that certainly describes a vegan a vegan has made a decision to cut back on animal products. They've just done it so effectively that they eat none at all. Vegetarians also tend to reduce the amounts of animal products that they consume, of course, even though they will eat some amount of eggs and dairy. A flexitarian is also a reducitarian. A flexitarian being someone who primarily eats plant-based foods with the occasional inclusion of animal products in their diet. And all of those uh, individuals are reducitarians. 
I think what's interesting about the reducetarian approach is it's not focused on either of those groups, though there are opportunities for individuals within those communities to help advance the reducetarian goals, which, as you said, there are many that overlap with vegans and vegetarians and flexitarians and so on. But the primary target audience of the reducetarian campaign are omnivores who are eating way, way too many animal products. So you take a person, let's say, who's eating 200 pounds of meat. My hope, my dream is to inspire that person to cut back 10% or 15% or maybe some miracle 20%. So that person might go from eating 200 pounds of meat to eating 80 pounds, sorry, 180 pounds of meat or eating 160 pounds of meat. Obviously, a person who's eating 160 pounds of meat is not a flexitarian and certainly not a vegetarian or vegan. But all of those people are reducitarians because they are, in effect, committed to the idea that we eat too many animal products and we should consider cutting back. That said, I do think that there are some differences between how veganism is interpreted by some individuals. For many, uh, I interpret their interpretation of veganism to be that a person is only vegan if they do not consume animal products, thinking from the perspective of diet. But for some, it's more of an even broader ideology around not directly contributing to harm. And I tend to have critiques of those interpretations or just ideas when it comes to veganism, because I see them as, as just basically impossible. And we can talk more about this and why, and, and maybe this is meaningful or maybe it's silly, but sometimes I do get into debates with folks who are very excited to identify as vegan, um, even though they occasionally include animal products in their diet, and even though they intentionally make choices that harm other beings. And because I'm the guy who's very much focused on it's not all or nothing and, and don't let you know perfection be the enemy of the progress and so on, I do find that occasionally some vegan rhetoric can, I think, be very counterproductive toward what I think is a shared goal around reducing societal consumption of animal products and ending factory farming. Um, I like the aspirational nature of veganism when it is defined as such. Um, but if I go to an airport and I get a, 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 ve a vegan burger, but the buns have some butter in it, can I still be called vegan? Well, some people say yes, and some people say no. Um, how about if I decide that I'm going to take a walk outside, knowing that I'm going to inevitably crush insects beneath my feet? I certainly did not have to go for a walk outside. Um, I don't know how anyone defines themselves as, as vegan if they actually think about what the word means. And I think that's in part because we all make decisions to harm um, other animals. And with rare exception, there are very few people on the planet who actually don't occasionally intentionally include animal products in their diet. So there's a lot to unpack there, but th that's kind of my thoughts on the, the similarities and differences between some of the lexicon we have around our relationship to food. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I think... Um... Yeah, I think veganism is a terribly complicated concept. Um but um but no, you're I think you're I think you're right that um so I I interestingly uh I think quite a lot of vegans would say that it's an aspirational ideal. They they'll admit that um it's 
get with that without widespread social change, um, collective social change, it really isn't possible to be 100% vegan all the time. And it's probably not psychologically feasible. Um, so, so they'll, they'll fall back on this idea that, yeah, it's an aspirational ideal. It's something we're all aiming at to do. We're all trying our best to be as vegan as possible, but, but it's not, it's, it's really not possible to go 100% all the time. Um, so they'll, they'll use that use of the term, but then the, the same people, uh, and including myself, I guess, um, because I, I identify as vegan, um, we'll also use the term in a, as a binary concept sometimes. Um, so even though we, we have this aspirational ideal concept in mind, we'll also say that the term vegan doesn't apply to someone unless they meet some kind of threshold level of um, abstinence from animal products. So like um, if you're eating like bread that has sterile to lactylate or some like small amount of animal product in it, maybe the concept still applies to you because that's such a, that's just a micro ingredient. Um, but if you're eating like a steak once a week or something, the concept doesn't apply to you because, because we've sort of decided that that's too much, too much animal product for you to qualify as vegan. There's this sort of heart. So I, I maybe different, I think it's different people kind of annoyingly set, put the threshold in different places. <laughs> but but anyone who's using the term vegan probably is also a lot of the time using it in as a, a binary concept where people who fall below a certain threshold are not vegan, whereas people who go above a, a, that threshold are vegan. And um, and I take it, yeah, I take it you take issue with this because it's a ve- that's a very exclusionary um, identity. Um, people who are using the term vegan this way are always distinguishing between vegans and non-vegans. And sometimes they're labeling someone non-vegan, even if they're really aware of the problems with factory farming. And, and even if that person is um, really committed to reducing their consumption of animal products, it seems like a very kind of like, I don't know, uh, kind of like an exclusive club that, um, uh, that, that vegans are interested in keeping kind of tight and, and um, re- retaining the um, social status, whatever social status might be associated with it. I don't know. I think uh, and I, yeah, I take it that's what you dislike about, about veganism, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, again, there's the part of it that's very strategic and practical where I just don't, I think it's a very alienating term and I think is generous because only 1% of people identify as vegan. So by definition, it's fairly alienating in that it divides people along this this line. And we the data I've seen suggests that encouraging people to eat less meat is going to be uh, more effective at getting people to eat less meat than asking them to, to go vegan. Um it's also the case that I think the fixation on diet as a whole is counterproductive. Um, so if a person is 80%, you know, let's say they've cut back 80%, but they've opened a vegan restaurant, that to me is much more meaningful than a person who's 100% vegan, but spends all their time on Twitter complaining about the fact that I'm critiquing veganism. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, you know, I think that's part of my also my concern is just the fixation on on diet as a whole. But I admit, I do also just um, in a very silly way, just find the whole thing quite absurd, in that it is this very uh, random delineation of what qualifies one human being as vegan over not. If I eat only turkey on Thanksgiving, can I can I call myself vegan? Um, I just find it to be uh, kind of silly, but I want to pick up on something you said, which is that you said, if I understood you, you said something like being vegan is about trying to do the best that you can, or that's how people can interpret it. And I also take issue with that. And I want to try to explain why, assuming you find this reasonably interesting, 
in, mm-hmm. in that I don't think people are trying their best. I really don't. And I think that's actually a dangerous idea. I think people are deeply flawed. I think that you and I could be better people. I think you and I could be more vegan. Uh, I think we could do more things that reduce uh, our direct harm to other people. And I worry about a group of people that think that they're doing their best because I think that that puts them in a place where they think that they are sort of holier than other people who are also trying in other parts of their life. I take a much deeper look at humanity, which is to say that it is flawed and it's very difficult for people to to actually be the best that they can. And it's worth acknowledging that vegans, vegetarians, flexitarians, omnivores, we are all flawed. Some of us are trying to do more than others, but no one is approximating what I would consider to be doing their best. Hmm. And I find it kind of an odd excuse. I'd rather people just look at themselves and deal with the cognitive dissonance of saying, I'm a person who cares about animals, and yet I take actions every day that harm animals, even though I don't have to. That to me is a much more honest and much more unifying message. And it doesn't mean that people should not try to be as vegan as possible with respect to their own limitations as a human. But I think it does call for humility and an acknowledgement that to be human is to cause suffering to others that I think is actually important as we try to answer some of the sort of long-term questions we might have about humanity and its relationship to the world around us. Okay, thanks. Um, I want to move on in, in a moment, but this particular topic is just rich, I think. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'll dwell a little bit longer. Um, I, w- w- so what, one thing I wanted to, um, su- I guess it's a suggestion maybe, or, or just an idea I want to run by you. Um, and, and I'm sort of, for the, for the moment, I'm going to leave aside um, the various diff- various difficulties with um, with veganism um, as, as a conceptual difficulties and, and, and whatever else. Um, but so I think that, so I, I, I think you get, you get some flack sometimes from, from people who identify as vegans, um, and from, um, other members of, um, the animal rights movement. Um, and, uh, they, they, they don't like the, you know, people don't like the, these people often don't like the idea of reducitarianism. They think that maybe what you're doing is in some way harmful. Um, and I, I, I take it the reason is probably because, um, they, I think that most vegans and people in the animal rights movement hold a conventional view of the relationship between um, moral obligations and the appropriateness of ascribing blame. Um, so the conventional view just being that um, when somebody violates a moral obligation or a duty, um, they should be blamed for failing for failing to meet their obligation or for violating the duty. Um, and and if, so if you take that sort of conventional view about the relationship between ascriptions of blame and and moral obligations, um, then it seems that reducitarianism is presupposing that going vegan is not a moral obligation because reducitarianism uh, praises people for making whatever progress they make and refrains from blaming people for going further. Um, and yeah, I think that I think that when vegans see that, they think, well, implicitly, you're saying therefore veganism is not a moral obligation. Um, and, and most, most vegans think that it is most vegans think that going vegan is indeed a, a moral duty that we have. It, do, do, so I think that's, I, I have a, I have a second thing to say, but 
the first, I, I'll stop there for a moment. Do you, do you, do you think I'm right about this? Like, so you, you do get some flack sometimes and is, is, am I right in my diagnosis of, of why people sometimes give you some, give you, give you flack? I think you're, you're definitely onto something with this for sure. Okay. It is the case that reduced cetarian is designed to make people feel good for not go for not going all the way in part because it assumes that people will not go all the way, mm. which I, 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 I'm hesitant to be humble or, or, or acknowledge uncertainty around that. But it, it, it seems to me fairly likely that if I could get a megaphone and shout to the world that they should go vegan, I don't think that's going to happen, right? So I'm assuming that people are not going to do that. And my worry is that when people hear go vegan, they hear give up all the foods that you love, give up all the holidays, all the memories you have at the baseball game, eating the hot dog with your dad. Don't You're not going to be able to have turkey on Thanksgiving. Forget about that ham on Christmas. All that times you go out with your friends, your family, all the foods you love. I mean, it's such an extreme thing to say to someone from my perspective as someone who grew up in Staten Island and was eating all those foods 24-7. I don't think it's an effective um, thing to say. So, yeah, I think that's that's definitely part of where the, the concern is. And I'm concerned about it, too. And that's the thing. I'm concerned about it all. I don't consider myself to be a particularly optimistic person about the the current state and the future state of the world. My goal is just to work in probabilities. And from what I can see, uh, telling people to eat less meat is going to be more effective. But to your point, at what? Well, my goal is not for people to meet more obligations. It's to reduce the amount of suffering in the world. What I find interesting about moral obligations and maybe you'll school me on this from a from a philosophy perspective but i don't understand I'm, I'm perplexed why the moral obligation is so focused on food and what we wear versus like for example our, our interactions with animals in the wild i think we have an equally moral obligation never to step in a car or to fly or really we should move around as little as possible we should eat as little food as possible because all of those actions create harm in the world. So I'm fine with people having moral obligations, but it's very inconsistent to me when they are fine hurting some animals as opposed to um, not hurting others. And that's, I think, the shaky ground in which the framing of veganism as a moral obligation holds. I find that many of those people are engaging in even speciesism where they care about pigs, but not insects, or um, they're focused on their immediate surroundings rather than their broader surroundings. It just always strikes me as very inconsistent. I'm perfectly mm-hmm. fine with someone doing violating a moral obligation if it's going to re- you know, result in the least amount of suffering in the world. And that's really what I'm after. So I think there may be some mixed goals, at least in the short term, where these reduced vegetarian framings and veganism might collide. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, so I'm, I'm, I myself am perf- perfectly comfortable with the idea that we owe way more moral obligations than we think, and that and that vegans, um, uh, many vegans are failing to recognize various moral obligations that we have towards um, sentient beings and and beings who may be sentient. Um, but um, so okay, so here's here, here's the second part of what what I wanted to um, suggest, which is that. Um, 
I think that one thing that is open to you and um, also, and, and, and even if you don't want to take up the invitation, um, maybe other reducitarians would be interested. Um, one thing that's that's open to reducitarians is to reject the conventional view about the relationship between ascriptions of blame and um, moral obligations. Um, so, and, and they might want to do this in particular with respect to moral obligations that are, that are fairly demanding, um, especially demanding moral obligations that we haven't been socialized from birth to endorse. Um, because a lot of moral obligations that we have are things that we've been socialized from, from birth to endorse. Um, so we, well, any of us have been, will have been socialized to refrain from like stealing, from killing other human beings. Um, we've been socialized to refrain from lying, uh, et cetera. Um, but, but, you know, most of us grew up eating meat and eating dairy and eating lots of that stuff. Um, and it was only later on that any of us came to realize that that was morally problematic and maybe came to recognize an obligation to do something like go vegan. Um, <clears throat> I think that, um, so I know, I know that you've been influenced by Peter Singer and Peter Singer, um, has hit a, an interesting view about the relationship between blame and moral obligations, um, that, that he expresses in his work on global poverty. Um, he thinks that we have really, really demanding obligations towards the global poor, but he doesn't think that it makes sense from an activist perspective to advocate for those obligations. He thinks that activists should uh, have a public message that's a little different from what people are actually obligated to do. Um, so instead of advocating for people to donate almost all of their wealth or all of their resources to the global poor, even though he thinks that, even though he's argued in the past that that's what we really ought to do, really ought, we ought to be donating all that. Um, he thinks that activists should have a more modest message. They should maybe uh, advocate for giving away 10% of your wealth to the, to the global poor. Um, and the reasoning is just that um, a more modest message or less demanding message is going to be uh, more effective. It's just going to, it's going to get people to, to at least do something good. It'll have better consequences. Um, it'll be less discouraging. Um, and yeah, it just struck me that, that reducitarians could take the same kind of view about diet. They could say that, um, because it's so difficult for people to go vegan and because trying to get people, a lot of people to go vegan will just discourage them. Um, it makes sense, even, even if we acknowledge a moral obligation to go vegan, it makes sense to not blame people for failing to meet that moral obligation and instead um, just suggest to them that, that they make a commitment to reducing their consumption of animal project, products and then, and then praise them when they successfully do that. Um, so acknowledge, the idea is to, would be to acknowledge a moral obligation to go vegan, but to, ref, to uh, for, for good philosophical reasons, uh, refrain from blaming people if they fail to meet that obligation and and to focus activism on something other than that moral obligation um, something that will at least get people closer to to meeting that obligation even if they don't go all the way you're spot i think you're really spot on here okay. uh, you know i'm all for i'm all for blame in a sense in that i think humanity is is deeply flawed <laughs> i don't i don't know about individual humans but humanity i have a, a deep issue with um and I'm very concerned about arguments that we should have as many people on the planet as possible, and we should have as many people across the galaxies as possible. Um, so I, you know, I don't, I don't have rosy feelings when I think of humanity. Um, but I also have sympathy for people because I know how difficult it is to to meet moral obligations. Because I see people who are among the most morally conscious people I know, who I would call vegans and are constantly failing to meet moral obligations from my perspective, which you sort of alluded to by saying there were, you know, other, other moral obligations that they could meet. 
And I feel that way about myself, who's who's trying, but is you know every day I make many moral failures. I'm an imperfect person, like like everyone else that I know. Um, I'm not trying to win, a, and I'm not trying to score an A on a philosophy test. I'm not trying to impress anyone with being correct morally about things. In in the sense of, of course, it would be better if people didn't slaughter animals. Uh, of course, it would be better if we did many things. I'm just trying to. Uh, use strategic messaging to get us to a world where there's less suffering in it. And I think that will fall, fall very short of an ideal world. Hmm. Are there fringe, uh, maybe philosophical ideas in which being vegan is not the best world? I mean, you know, if, if, if all the animals had perfectly happy lives and every day they were doing well, and then, you know, once, once in a while, um, these animals were slaughtered. You know, I, you know, I can understand how if they're, you know, hundred days are great and one day is bad. Maybe there's some argument where we should all be eating meat. Uh, but I don't like these philosophical questions because they're very divorced from the reality. And I find that some people get very caught up in their philosophical ideals around what their tr- dream vision is for the world. And I think that's something that a lot of advocates do, whether they want a vegan world or they want a world where the animals are out on pasture. Um, there's a lot of idealism that I find quite strange given how horrific and far we are from that ideal. And mm-hmm. I'm sympathetic toward just trying to make the world marginally better. That's my goal. If, if tomorrow the world was marginally better, I'd be thrilled. We are absolutely moving in the other direction from my mm-hmm. perspective on this issue. I mean, I mean, given the the size of the harms associated with factory farming, even marginal improvement is large in absolute terms. Like, so when we're dealing with large scale issues like factory farming, um, making a proportionately small gain um, is still really big in absolute terms. So, if, yeah, even even marginally better is still great when we're dealing with an issue like this. I think. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Okay, well, let's 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 get let's get a little less maybe less philosophical and more just into the content of your book. Um, so, a, a notable feature of your book, uh, I think, is that it's just full of engaging personal stories that you you connect to its subject matter. Uh, I was hoping you would comment on on some of the ways your personal experiences have informed your writing and your activism. It really comes back to growing up in Staten Island. I mean, I know what it's like to have a dad who is worried about paying the bills and is worried about just trying to make it through the next day. And I know what it's like to be a young boy who wants to eat really salty and fatty and fatty and sugary foods. And my McDonald's and Burger King and um, KFC and all those restaurants were very close to my house. And it was very easy for me to eat those foods. Um, and for those listening in the United States, going to Applebee's and Chili's, you know, when it was a special occasion or something like that. And, and meat, was at the center of all those meals. Um, I didn't eat vegetables growing up. I didn't eat fruits growing up. My parents didn't really cook. The, the extent of cooking was primarily barbecuing or microwaving some um, some meal, of pizza or chicken nuggets or something like that, uh, chicken cutlets, um, these kinds of these kinds of dishes. So, and that's what everyone else I knew ate. You know, that was the norm. And so to tell someone like that, that they should cut back, or sorry, that they should go vegan, um, or even cut back, which is hard on its own, but certainly go vegan, is, is just silly. Um, it's, it just strikes me as really silly and, and divorced from the reality. 
So I think about all those, you know, childhood memories I had, I think about my parents to this day, and the kind of people that they are, and will probably continue to be. And I, I think about those experiences as kind of a template for for most people, not to say that there aren't people who grow up in situations where they're vegetarian or vegan, or they're having a really robust, you know, uh, diet filled with whole foods. But um, that's not that's not who, you know, I'm targeting, I'm targeting the what I would consider to be the everyday person. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the, the scene in the film that makes it into the book that's most exemplar of that is my parents had never had an avocado before. And there's a really amazing, you know, scene described and that can be viewed where my parents try guacamole for the first time. And you can really see the revulsion on their face in eating a food like that, that may be familiar to you and me, but is not to them. And by, by food, I really, I really mean like a vegetable. I mean, that's the thing, right? It could have substituted some other food, but the fact that it was just a vegetable to them, they're probably not going to like it because their taste buds are not accustomed to those foods and they don't bring the same cultural associations. Mm-hmm. So it was really interesting to, to reflect on my upbringing and my childhood and connect it to the present day in which it's very clear to me that my parents are by and large, though my dad in particular has made some changes, the same people that they were when they were in their 30s and had me and who they are today in their 70s. Yeah, um, I, I think, yeah, I remember in the, I think in the book and the documentary, you mentioned how um, your, yeah, your dad in particular has um, changed his diet, um, I guess, a fair bit since the documentary uh, was filmed. Um, it, does, does your dad identify as a reducitarian or does he, does he prefer not to use a label? I think he likes using reducitarian just from the perspective of supporting me. And he mm-hmm. has made some changes to his diet, which is really cool. He still, I would had to guess he probably eats 180 pounds of meat a year instead of 200 or something like that. So he has made some changes. He started eating more vegetables, which is really, you know, good for his health and the world at large. But it's interesting because my dad is an exception in this story. You know, most people, unfortunately, don't make these changes. And, and I'm sure we'll get into this. But part of that is because we have to change the the food environment in which they're making those decisions. And I also will say, I also came to Reducitarian from my upbringing. Uh, I came to care about the planet by living in Staten Island. It's a very green borough. And I cared a lot about not only the environment, the natural spaces, but also the wildlife that were living in those environments. And so uh, I sort of identified as an environmentalist by the time I got to college And I did, in fact, read a book by Peter Singer and his colleague, Jim Mason, called The Ethics of What We Eat, that really helped me uh, understand our food system, which I simply didn't think about. I was thinking about, like, leaving the lights on and taking shorter showers and stuff like that. So it's interesting to me that not only that my childhood, of course, informed my perspective on this, um, but also that I came to this from the environmental perspective. I have a master's in conservation biology, and I slowly started to really think more about individual animals and a little bit less about collections of animals that we sometimes call species. Okay, right. Um, yeah, I think that um, this is something that's not super recent at this point, but 
recent enough. Uh, just people people getting involved in um, animal advocacy and food related advocacy, um, specifically because they're interested in protecting the environment, um, and not so much because, or maybe to a lesser extent, because they were uh, concerned about animal welfare issues. Um, in the past, you know, back back in the seventies and eighties, I, I don't think hardly anyone who was involved in animal or food advocacy was was really all that concerned with the environment. They were mostly concerned with animal rights or animal welfare. But yeah, more recently, it's become increasingly environmental, um, environmentally motivated. Um, I think, I guess, just because we know more about the relationship between um, things like factory farming and environmental harms. Those things were not well known in, say, the 70s or 80s or what have you. I think you're right. And I think it's a, overall, it's a good thing uh, because we need people to fight this problem from many different perspectives. So if it's environmental issues or health, though there can be some complicated trade-offs. For example, it's not good when an environmentalist encourages people to cut back on beef because that results in them eating more chickens and fish, which are smaller. And so more animals are harmed as a result of that. It's also not good from the perspective of an environmentalist when an animal advocate will encourage people to cut back on chicken, which is the by far the largest um, percent of animals or chickens that are raised on factory farms, uh, specifically land-based ones. So that's why I favor an eat less meat or cut back on animal products kind of messaging because it removes some of those trade-offs that you might find with more specific kinds of messaging. But overall, it's very, very a uh, good development that we're seeing more folks outside the animal advocacy movement care about ending factory farming, which always uh, leads to reductions in animal products. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Well, okay. So the the first part of your book focuses on the history of meat production and of meat consumption in the United States. Um, I, I'm wondering whether there are any parts of this history that you think are worth focusing on in particular. Um, uh, so for example, parts that contain lessons you think activists should learn? Yeah, it was really interesting reading all of this history um, because I didn't really know anything about it coming into it. And um, I think the biggest takeaway I had is that it used to be very expensive and not convenient to eat meat. And that is probably the, the, the number one reason why Historically, people didn't eat as much meat um, as they wanted to um, or did. Uh, of course, from an evolutionary perspective, you know the diet was varied, and people would eat meat when they could. Um, but you know, when you think of the you know 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, people were not eating a lot of meat because there just wasn't enough supply, and in part because of that, it was very expensive. And so the question I found myself asking as I was kind of reading all about this is like, okay, what are the, what happened, you know, that made meat so readily available and so inexpensive. And there are these kind of mythic tales of different individuals that, you know, found ways to freeze meat so that it was, you know, could be eaten throughout the year. Otherwise it would go spoiled or to transport it from one place to another. So people you know, far away from the farms would be able to access uh, that meat or to be able to change the way in which the animals were raised for food. Everything from, you know, including low levels of antibiotics um, in their feed so that they would be able to 
be more crammed and be able to survive despite being so close to each other, developing um, you know, additives to add to feed that would make them grow faster, changing their genetics uh, so that they would grow faster and require fewer inputs. Um, you know, there's these kind of landmark in- interventions that took place, um, not always on purpose, but usually um, to, to try to make meat more affordable and more available. And I was just fascinated by the these different developments and some of the characters that were um, at, you know, at the helm of them. And it helped crystallize for me, I think, really this idea that in order to make change, we're going to have to find a way to make meat more expensive, make it less available, um, or find alternatives that, that meet those metrics. I think if you look back at the history and you see the development, it's pretty clear that that's the reason why meat consumption was on the rise. There's all sorts of other questions around why people want to eat as much meat as they do, which perhaps we could talk about. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of, I think, some of the nuggets of the history that I that I found and thought was pretty interesting. Okay, right. And yeah, we will talk about um, why people eat as much meat as they do, um, you know, I guess, independently of, of, of cost, um, the cost of eating it. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I guess you, you think that the the history surrounding meat consumption and, and production suggests that, um, and you already you already said this really, but um, that from an activist perspective, what we really want to see happen is for bad bad meat, harmful meat, factory farm meat, um, to become more expensive, um, and I guess also alternatives, meat alternatives that are not so harmful, such as um, plant based meat and in vitro meat. We want that stuff to be widely available and as cheap as possible, and the just the the, the history of, of meat production and consumption just we can infer from it that that this is what needs to happen for the consumption of bad meat to to be significantly reduced um i guess right. I, I guess that's it that's right yeah i mean that isn't to say that we can't try to disentangle or you know decrease interest in eating meat from from a health perspective or c- get people to care about animals or so on um but it, it does strike me that the main drivers of change that at least have taken place so far are really uh, economic ones and that the the psychology and emotion involved in eating meat seems to pretty much always been there so um it's just a question of which one is easier to change and both will be hard uh, but it seems like the economic one um at least we have a chance with from my perspective mm-hmm. Um, okay, cool. Um, so the the second part of your book focuses on explaining something that you call the meat paradox. Uh, I was hoping that you could explain what the meat paradox is, uh, as well as some of the general factors that that cause the paradox to obtain. Yeah, I definitely didn't coin the the meat paradox, and many people have used that that term before. My understanding of it is it basically describes this really interesting situation in which people care about animals uh, yet they eat them. That's kind of a strange situation, right? Where um, people will say that factory farming is bad and they will say that pigs feel pain and that they're relatively smart. You can look at these really, that they even, even crazy things like people oppose slaughter um, when they're asked in, you know, surveys and polls. Of course, knowing that, you know, still knowing somehow that animals are slaughtered in order to produce the meat that they eat. So there's this really strange cognitive dissonance that takes place and there's a lot of psychology involved in that people justify 
uh, you know, eating meat, thinking that it's, it's necessary from a health perspective, that it's sort of natural. This is what we've always done, uh, that the animals are uh, actually, you know, treated very relatively well, at least the meat, you know, that they purchase. Uh, and so it, it comes back to this, this sort of strange thing that in some part of people are actually good. And there is a moral component to them that they know that this is not right. But unfortunately, at the same time, they want to eat meat and they uh, will do so even if it's a violation of some of the moral norms that they have somewhere tucked in in the back of their brain. Hmm. And yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. So I, I, I think, uh, I mean, a lot of that section of the book was interesting. Um, but one thing I, I guess that struck me as uh, as particularly interesting is that um, you suggest that meat is addictive, um, that there's a lot of evidence showing that um, the way meat affects our, our affects us psychologically and physiologically is, is it more or less analogous to the way um, addictive drugs affect us psychologically and physiologically. Um, I, I was hoping maybe you, you'd say a little bit about that. I take it that was one of the the general factors that causes the the paradox to obtain. I think that's right. Yeah, we are addicted to meat. I mean, we 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 can't stop eating it. You know, despite despite the fact that we know it may not be good for us in high volumes, or that it's bad for the planet, or that we know it's cruel to animals. Part of that is because we um, have evolved in part to you know, to eat meat, to be excited about meat burning on a fire. So there's certainly some evolutionary context to that. Culturally, we've grown up eating meat and some of our greatest, fondest memories are often tied to food and with meat being uh, at the center of that. Um, there's also this really interesting development between meat and the food industry in which they have essentially made meat even more delicious, making it more processed, making it more salty, fatty, uh, you know, putting some buns on it to add some sugar. And that's really the advent of the fast food industry in that they really helped scale meat consumption by making it incredibly cheap and accessible and just dialing up the, the taste factor where you, you just have this explosion of joy, um, you know, from your taste buds to your brain. And so it's really hard to overcome all of those factors of biological, cultural, um, the, the, the food tech involved in making people want these products. So those are just some of the reasons that food and particularly meat um, is so addictive and, you know, why people don't get as excited to eat broccoli or kale or uh, lentils or something mm -hmm. like that. It's just it, the, the odds are stacked against us. Some of it just by virtue of our history, but others by the, the profit driven motives of getting people to eat more of these products. Right. Okay. Yeah. It makes me think that um, part of the reason why we should really want there to be um, meat alternatives or alternative forms of meat, such as plant-based meat or in vitro meat, uh, is that, um, I mean, if meat is addictive, um, then it would be really useful to give someone or to give people something that satisfies their addiction, but in a 
in a more ethical manner. Um, so like giving people plant-based meat or in vitro meat is a little bit like giving a, a, a heroin addict um, methadone, I guess. Um, Absolutely. And I love that analogy because it's it's so fun to watch people who otherwise support harm reduction messages to be against cell cultured meat is a really interesting thing for, you know, or be against plant-based meat because let's say it would be better if people ate um, whole fruits and vegetables and legumes and whole grains. Uh, but I think the harm reduction one is the perfect analogy to that. Um, you know, if people are going to do drugs, let's make sure that the needles that they use um, are clean. Um, if people are going to have sex, um, maybe we should provide them with education around that um, and not preach abstinence. And I have a very similar feeling about meat. If people are going to eat meat, which it seems to me like they are, let's at least have the option of uh, alternatives like plant-based meat or cell-cultured meat where they're able to eat the foods that they love, uh, and though not as ideal, I, I would argue, as eating broccoli, still much better than factory farm meat than the alternative. Okay, right, yeah. Okay, well, now, so in, in chapter nine of your of your book, you note that some people are less likely than others to either stop eating meat or, or to reduce their consumption of it. Uh, I was hoping you would explain some of the reasons why some particular people, or people of, of certain groups and whatnot, uh, find it harder to or are more reluctant to stop eating meat. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I see a lot of studies that come out about this, and sometimes the you know they're a bit conflicting. Uh, but you know, there are going to be pockets of people who are going to be more motivated to cut back on animal products than others. It does seem like young people tend to be more open to cutting back. That doesn't surprise me that much when young people tend to be a little bit more open to change than people who've been living a certain way for, for many, many years. Um, liberals, progressives tend to be a little bit more open to cutting back on animal products. It's not dramatic. Um, but it doesn't have some of the cultural wars, I think, associated with meat that you might find um, among some corners of the um, Republican or con conservative parties. Um, uh, it's the case that people who are more educated are also uh, tend to be more open to cutting back on animal products, maybe because they're more aware uh, of some of the issues. Um, different motivations will resonate with different groups. It doesn't surprise me that younger people are more concerned about climate change than older people. It doesn't surprise me that there are many older people who are concerned about health, given that you know, I remember being really young and being totally oblivious to the foods that I was eating, whereas an older person, I start to feel some cracks in my hip or sounds that I find disconcerting. It motivates me to eat you know, more fruits and vegetables. Um, so some of this stuff, I think, is, is fairly intuitive. But I, it is interesting that no matter what demographic you're talking about, pe most people are eating too many animal products. And that's the thing, right? We're talking about like changes on the margin here, but the vast majority of people, regardless of what party they're in or what age they are or so on, there's plenty of Gen Z who are eating way too many animal products. So, you know, we have to think about who to target, you know, women tend to be more open to making changes to their diet. They tend to be more sympathetic, uh, as far as I remember, to issues concerning animals. Um, so yeah, we can adapt our messaging to different groups. And we should do that. Because we can't, we rarely can 
have a megaphone and tell the whole world one message. Usually we're talking to different audiences and we should change our, our messaging depending on who we're speaking to, to most um, you know, increase our chances of, of change. But this is a problem across all, all demographics for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's important to note, I think. Um, it's not like, um, I don't know, it's I get a little depressed sometimes actually thinking about uh, people who are otherwise very liberal-minded, very progressive, very interested in social change, but they just ignore animals. Um, and that's quite a lot of people who sort of are, are, would identify as um, progressive. Um, I would agree. Yeah, that is that is depressing. But I also, again, I, I try to remember before Mr. Reducitarian, you know, I was just, a, I was a decent person. I just didn't, I didn't make the connection. I always loved animals, but I just didn't think about chickens or cows. And so it, it I find not to go back to a previous conversation, but I like this idea of vegan amnesia that we, we sort of forget who we were before. Um, and when I remember who I was before, it helps me have more empathy. Not doesn't necessarily make me less depressed, but at least it makes me less angry. Yeah. That's, that's important too. <laughs> not yeah. to get too angry <laughs> and to be understanding of others, others perspectives. Yeah. Um, okay. So the, the, the third part of your book, explores uh, three meat alternatives to factory farmed meat. Uh, I was hoping you would explain what these three alternatives are and and also say a bit about the advantages and did disadvantages that they have relative to one another. Yeah, this is my favorite part of the book because it's really kind of taking everything that we've learned about the past and, and the present as to how it became that people ate as much meat uh, as they do and why they continue to eat as much meat as they do and thinking about well, what kind of meat can we offer people? Assuming we accept the premise that we're not going to get everyone to be able to, you know, to choose to have plant-based foods, um, like, you know, those fruits and vegetables and so on. So I really see three options on the table. Um, the first is high welfare, what would sometimes called regenerative meat, um, or even more loosely called better meat. And the idea of high welfare um, regenerative meat is really twofold, but it's centered around this idea that we don't have to eat meat from animals that come from factory farms. There are a very small percentage, I would argue less than 1%, that raise animals under conditions that some people, including myself, might be willing to call high welfare. So their animals are not in cages, they're not in sheds. Um, they have access to pasture um, for the majority or all of the year. There are, uh, let's say, no mutilations, so um, no castration, for example, or, or dehorning or tail docking or, or many other practices that are routine in, in factory farming. Um, and we can eat those products. Um, and high welfare can also be associated with being what some might argue, though there's debate about this, more sustainable or more regenerative. And at a high level, what that means is raising animals in which you're not destroying the land. You're actually cultivating soil that is very rich in organic matter and is able to hold a lot of water, hold uh, some some amounts of carbon to it. Um, this is kind of the, and, and relies on a certain set of practices, like, for example, rotational grazing, where animals are able to, they're, they're able to eat some parts of the pasture for some period of time and then move to a different part of the pasture. And some 
eco-scientists have discovered that that's going to increase the productivity of the land and be able to, you know, like I said, uh, cultivate, you know, healthier soils, for example. So, you know, in theory, that's a, that's a really good thing. And, you know, when, when my family uh, comes over for Thanksgiving, they're not willing to have a plant-based meal. So one of the things that we've decided is we don't want them to bring their own turkey, which is what they were going to do from a factory farm. Instead, we would provide a turkey that is a high welfare, regenerative um, turkey. So, you know, this has a real implication in my own life where I'm engaging in this from time to time. Um, The downsides of this are that it's a fortune. I mean, to get truly high welfare meat that you might also call regenerative is very expensive. So for example, I think a turkey might be like 30 pounds or uh, sorry, $30 or $40 or something like that. Um, if you were going to a supermarket for Thanksgiving, um, a turkey from this particular farm that I visited called white Oak pastures, um, was something like $160, one turkey, $160. I, we could never afford to eat 200 pounds of meat and buy, um, you know, these products from a high welfare regenerative farm. There's also concerns that there's not enough land. Um, so you just, you can't create the supply that is needed. Uh, it's very land intensive to be able to have animals roam all around. It's much cheaper to just put them in cages or put them in sheds because you don't need as much land. Um, there's also concerns that there's a lot of humane washing that takes place a derivative of greenwashing. Uh, greenwashing is when something seems more sustainable. Humane washing is when something seems more humane. Uh, it's frustrating because I know that white oak pastures is more uh, more humane. Uh, it's indescribably more humane than a factory farm. But there are plenty of farms that are only marginally more humane than a factory farm, and they use similar language. And so it can be difficult to tell what's real and what's not. And there are third-party verifications programs, labels that you might see on food um, in you know, the United States, certified humane, animal welfare approved. There's a gap uh, that, that in partnership with Whole Foods developed, um, but it can be difficult for consumers to understand them. And then on the environmental side, there's a lot of debate around how environmentally friendly or regenerative this kind of meat can be. It does require a lot more land. There's not a ton of scientific data around how much carbon is actually being sequestered when you cultivate these healthy soils. And there are some farms like White Oak Pasture who do demonstrate that they are engaging in some restorative land practices. Um, But every farm is its own entity, and most don't have this data, and yet they're calling themselves regenerative. So, you know, that's that's, uh, one of some of the major opportunities and problems associated with high welfare meat. Then you have plant-based meat, which is meat that is meant to mimic the uh, texture and taste of animal-based meat, but comes from plants. So companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods are taking ingredients and you know pressurizing them and adding temperature, uh, certain types of temperature and so on, and trying to re- replicate that experience. And that's good from the perspective that it doesn't require the slaughter of an animal like the high welfare meat does. Um, the, the challenge there is it, it does it taste as good 
And unfortunately, in a lot of cases, it doesn't. Or it tastes good, but it doesn't taste exactly like animal-based meat. Um, it's also still marginally more expensive than factory farmed meat, which we know is a, is a challenge. So the question there is, will they be able to use plants to be able to really recreate the, the taste and texture of um, plant-based meat? And I think the jury is still out on that. And the last one, and then we're welcome to dive into any of these if you'd like, is cell-cultured meat. Some people call cultivated meat, and what I would advise people not call, but it is often called in the media, lab-grown meat. And cell-cultured meat is this idea of being able to eat real animal-based meat that did not require the use of slaughtered animals, rather required the use of their cells, cells from an animal. So you can imagine there's a chicken near you and you go up to that chicken and you take a feather and in that feather, there might be some cells or you take a very small biopsy from the, from the skin of the, the chicken, a minor inconvenience, I'm, I'm sure, but relatively unharmed, the chicken runs off and you put that cell in a nutrient dense environment. You basically give cells what they need in order to grow like they would in your own body and they multiply and they divide and they sort of stitch together and eventually you would get some kind of differentiation. So maybe those cells would become muscle, they become fat. And using the available technology that we have, we can then create some kind of texture that we might recognize that, hey, this is a chicken nugget, or this is a burger, or this is a, a fish filet. And the advantages of that are obvious. You're eating nature identical meat, real meat. I mean, if you were to take, you know, the chemical signatures of, of the slaughtered cow and the cell cultured cow meat, they're the same. Um, so that's a really great thing because there's basically zero sacrifice. Uh, some of the downsides, uh, it costs a fortune. Um, it's not really clear whether it's going to be able to scale or not. Um, there's a ick factor for some people. There's been a long history of people re you know, rejecting what they perceive to be you know, new foods or foods that come from a lab in select circumstances like this one. Um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, those are the three options I think on the table for us. And I don't know if there'll be any others. And I think the hope is that some mix of those will, will hit a dent um, into the market. But I can tell you now that 1% of meat is probably plant-based meat. 1% of meat is this sort of truly high welfare regenerative meat. And basically zero, those small, small amounts of cell culture meat are being sold in select countries. So you still have a situation when 98% of meat basically is, is factory farmed. Okay, right. Um, yeah, well, one thing you said near the end there, that um, some some mix of these three options will hopefully make a dent in, in the amount of factory farm meat that's produced and consumed. Um, that that, that seemed, seems like it's worth highlighting, I guess, because one might reasonably wonder, like, you know, which of these alternatives is the best and should be promoted at the expense of the others or something. But, but I think you think that it's, it's really great that all three are being explored, um, that all three have some support and that anyone who's a proponent of one shouldn't, um, attack the others because, because presumably all three of these options, um, appeal to different audiences to some extent and having all three of all three available to um, on the market, um, helps, uh, I don't know, just, get a larger amount of people eating better meat or eating meat that's not factory farm meat. Um, and, and I guess helps build up a, a broader coalition of people who are, who are all against factory farming. Is that, is that your view? I think. 
That's right. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. And that's something that I've been working on, you know, from a movement building perspective is, as I think I said at the beginning, we sometimes have this ideal vision, you know, I'm really excited about plant-based meat, or I'm really excited about high welfare meat or whatever it is. And I get that. And if you're excited about one particular intervention, by all means, uh, work on that. But it's really silly to try to undermine these other interventions when we know all three, though they have their downsides, all three are infinitely better than factory farm meat, at least on the metrics that I think are most important. And we need all of them because of the reason that you said that some of these products will appeal to different consumers. But I actually think the second reason might be more interesting which is about humility in that we don't know which is going to succeed, if any. And that's really the key here. Um, We don't know if these are capable of being scaled. We don't know what consumers will think of them. Uh, Each of them has their own pros and cons. And so from my perspective, we kind of just have to spread our chips far and wide. And I think this is true not just with respect to these, these food technologies, but also with our activism broadly. I want some people focused on policy, some focused on legal, some on communications, some on food tech, and so on. And it'll be always difficult to figure out how to dole out money, whether it's in the nonprofit space or the private sector, when there's limited amounts of, of funds, or it'll be difficult for you and me and people listening to figure out how they're going to spend their limited time on this earth, because we can't do everything. But regardless of what avenue someone chooses, I think it contributes to this this larger game of trying to chip away at factory farm meat consumption and really not knowing exactly what's going to work. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. Um, yeah, and another thing um, related to just the idea that it's it's kind of good that all three are being pursued. Um, it strikes me that um, there are some that some of these alternatives might be able to. Um, be used for purposes that other alternatives can't be used for. So um, in particular, um, I, I love plant-based meat. I eat plant-based meat uh, probably more than is healthy. Um, and I'm very um, excited about it. Um, but it doesn't seem to me that, um, or as far as I know, plant-based meat is not going to be great um, as an, uh, an alternative to existing pet foods. Um, so one of the things that, that some vegans care about is is providing um, less harmful uh, foods to pets who normally eat meat. Um, some, some, some of whom kind of, some of whom probably need to eat meat. So cats are, uh, are often labeled obligate carnivores. Um, you know, some, some domesticated cats probably can be more or less healthy without meat, but a lot of them really kind of need to eat meat if they're going to live healthy lives. Um, and I, I, as far as I know, plant-based meat is not so promising as a way of getting them what they need, but, but so these other alternatives, um, better meat and in vitro meat, probably could give i mean they're just they're 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 the same as factory farm meat except they're less harmful so presumably they could be used to, to develop clean pet or cleaner pet food that less harmful pet food that um that uh would be very nutritious for for the animals that eat them Cat, cats are sort of front front of mind but there's I, I think lots of other domesticated animals that are obligate carnivores too who would really benefit from that that's a really good um, point and i agree with you and i have a, a friend who identifies as vegan who goes to the store and buys what he considers to be higher welfare or high welfare meat and gives that meat to his cat. So Mm. this is not an unheard of development. Mm. Okay. Yeah. 
Well, um, look, we've I've taken up a lot of your time here. I'd, I'd like to thank you again for joining us to talk about your book, uh, Meet Me Halfway, How Changing the Way We Eat Can Improve Our Lives and Save Our Planet. Uh, the, this book was published in 2022 by Prometheus Books. The only other question that I have for you is whether you're currently working on any projects, and if so, uh, what are you working on? That's a fun question. Yeah. Uh, so I am working on a, different, a couple different things. I'm very excited about our, our fifth annual conference. So every year we bring together folks across these different spectrums and strategies to think about and talk about and you know how we can actually advance um, this goal. So our next one is going to be in Denver, October 27th to the 29th in Colorado in the United States. Um, we have a fellowship program where we work with undergraduate students and give them some mentorship and money and an, a summer internship uh, to, to try to help them align some of their interests with actually contributing to the reducitarian movement uh, in, a, in a reasonably large way, like working at a nonprofit or starting a food company or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been writing a lot. I found writing a book to be really challenging and so and, and making a film. So I'm very much enjoying these more short form uh, media pieces. I write for many different media outlets, often about animal related issues. And I've been really enjoying that. And at some point, I will get back into making another film and book. But uh, if, if I've learned anything in the, the nearly 10 years of doing this, it's that um, self-care is really important and I'm enjoying a period where I think I'm, my output is a little bit less, but my happiness is, is, is pretty high. And maybe this will be the, the level that I pursue for the rest of my days as I try to make the world a better place. Oh, okay. Well, nothing wrong with that. Um, uh, yeah, with respect to um, books, um, on your website, at least, you, you mentioned that you're working uh, on, I think, a, a work of fiction, a, a fiction novel. Um, that that's cool. Uh, it, it, I, I don't know what it's about, but but I mean, I guess you could you could say a bit about what you're about what you're writing. Um, uh, I, I wonder. I also wonder whether it it has some sort of connection with your um, activism, because um, I've personally been thinking a bit about how literature, like fictional literature, could be used to pursue activist goals. Um, I think it probably can be, but it requires a bit of creativity. I don't know. Yeah, thanks for asking me that. And it's funny you mentioned that. I actually just published an article today on Forbes um, arguing that we need to rely on more narrative um, fiction to help advance this movement because we've seen a lot of great work in the documentary space, but I do think we need to see more books and movies and so on um, embed these ideas because uh, people really respond to these these stories. Um, yeah, you know, I'm always kind of toying with different books that but at the same time, like I started a book on wild animal welfare at one point, I've been thinking about writing a book on pet food. Um, but during the pandemic, I wrote a this young adult novel. And I don't know how much it relates to my activism. It does feature a, a main character who is vegetarian. And he does reference his concern for factory farming and also for wild animal suffering. And if folks listen to this, and then they read that book, um, they can certainly read between the lines and, you know, see some of these ideas um, inserted there. But I also just found it to be a really fun, rewarding experience. And I share that in that I know a lot of advocates who struggle to to be happy and do things that just personally make them happy, even though it may not have some tangible benefit to the world, at least as far as they could see. And I hope the book gets published and I hope, and I have an agent who represents it and I hope um, it makes people happy and read it. But I also just did it because it was a, a lot of fun. So, yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, well, cool. Um, yeah, I hope it gets hope it gets published too. Um, okay, great. Well, yeah, thanks so much for talking to me. It's been it's been great. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This was a blast. Okay, take care.